Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Hey Ryan, how are you today? Pam, I'm doing great. I'm I'm so excited about today. Yes, you know, oftentimes we have survivors come up to us and they tell us um, what's going on. And I find myself um, trying to find the right words, not hurting their feelings, not but acknowledging what they are telling us. And sometimes we just don't know what the right thing to say is. That's exactly right. You know, I think uh, a lot of our listeners would probably think, for instance, maybe Ryan uh, has plenty to say, uh, and that's true. That's I do. True. That's very true. However, uh, in moments like that, it's sometimes best not to say anything than maybe say something that can be uh, taken wrongly or uh, complicate the, the scenario, right? Yes. And so I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Cynthia Hayes, the author of The Big Ordeal. She is also a cancer survivor joining us today. How are you, Cynthia? I'm very well. Thank you, Pam. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, what your book is all about? Sure. Um, So uh, I was a management consultant and a journalist for a number of years. And um, shortly before my own cancer diagnosis, I uh, had been working at Montefiore Medical Center in the, in the Bronx um, doing marketing and communications um, work. And I left there with the idea, this vague notion that I was going to write a novel. And of course, shortly after leaving, I um, did get a cancer diagnosis. I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Um, and that diagnosis came totally out of the blue. I had gone in for my regular gynecologic exam and uh, got a call a week later from a gynecologist telling me I had flunked my pap smear, which I didn't realize one could do. And um, more testing and um, uh, a couple of scary weeks um, confirmed that I did in fact have uh, endometrial cancer and I needed surgery, um, which was then followed by six months of chemotherapy. it was a grueling uh, experience. And of course, throughout that, I was very fearful about um, hearing the words, you have cancer. I was very fearful about what treatment was going to be like. I uh, was certain that the cancer was going to come back and I'm certain that I was gonna die from it. Um, And I was also incredibly sort of isolated and alone with all of those feelings. And it was only as I was beginning to climb out of um, my cancer treatment, I was back at the gym, I was bald as can be, as weak as a newborn baby and trying to regain some energy. And I sat down on a, um, on a bike and this guy came up and sat on the bike next to me and started telling me his cancer story. And he was talking about how afraid he was that he was gonna die when he first heard the words, you've got cancer. And he was telling me about how isolated and alone and how nobody could possibly understand what he was going through. And as he kept relaying these things, I kept thinking, well, I felt that too. Well, I felt that too. Well, so how come I didn't know that this was what other people felt? And that's what prompted me to write the book, um, The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. Because in fact, there is such psychological turmoil that comes with a cancer diagnosis. And because 
people don't talk about it. We're not aware of it. And so we think that we're the only ones going through it. We think that we're isolated and alone when in fact there are so many other cancer patients who have been through very similar emotions for very similar reasons, um, both uh, you know, emotional reasons, but also physical reasons behind those emotions. And so we share a common experience, but we don't talk about it. And so I'm hoping through um, the big ordeal to get people talking about the fact uh, that cancer really is a big ordeal. Pam, I can tell you right now, I have a feeling everyone listening is nodding their head, amen, you know, preach it, you know, I mean, they're, 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 they're tracking right along with everything Cynthia just said, right? Oh, sure. I'm sure. What interesting words that your doctor used that you flunked your tests. <laughs> yeah. What a way to start your diagnosis off um, with those words. And if, yeah. anything, if anything, he made it incredibly memorable for you. I don't know that maybe <laughs> those were the right words to use. Right. Um, but wow. But it, but it, but it worked. And, and it was, it was amusing because I, I had no reason for concern. And um, my daughter and I were uh, on our way to get uh, manicures. Um, we had a big uh, event that evening. We needed red nails. And so, you know, we were just marching along and the doctor uh, said, you know, you've got some blobbity blah cells um, here and I really don't like the look of it. And I want you to come back in for more testing. And I just sort of, you know, shrugged it off, thought nothing of it until I got to the manicurist. And all of a sudden I had, you know, a minute and a half before I had to uh, succumb to the manicurist and I Googled those cells and it's like, oh my God, I've got cancer and I'm going to die. And it was just an instant transition from being, you know, thoroughly unconcerned to being overwhelmed. And of course, that's such a typical response when we hear the words um, or hear the inkling. And of course, it's also not uncommon that the first time you get an inkling of something being wrong until the time it's actually confirmed and diagnosed and prognosed and, you know, now we know what we're going to do about it. That can be several weeks. And throughout that, there's just so much anxiety and uncertainty. And it's a pretty common experience to um, be running nightmare scenarios in your own head while everyone around you is saying, don't worry until you have something to worry about. And of course, you feel you have something to worry about right away. From the, the moment. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, you know, that's it's interesting too, Pam, listening to Cynthia um, and I can't tell you how many times, including it, it, with my story and, and others, everyone remembers where they were, what they were doing, what the weather was like, what kind of clothes they had on. I mean, they, they remember all of those details when they got that phone call. I mean, it, it's such a powerful, impactful moment. Cynthia, let's jump in real fast here and let's just describe and define this uh, phenomenon that has really become um, more defined over the years of toxic positivity. I think that's something that, you know, we want to focus on. Your book talks about it as well and dealing with and how to handle and so forth. But let's jump in real fast with just a definition of toxic positivity. Yeah, so toxic positivity is actually um, pretty common around um, uh, a lot of things, not just cancer. But the idea is that we become so um, focused on remaining positive that, that that positiveness becomes harmful to um, those around um, because it increases the, the burdens. Um, so now I've got cancer 
and I'm scared to death that I've got cancer and you're telling me to just smile and everything is going to be fine. That's one more hurdle that I have to deal with and one more way that I can feel incompetent in my life uh, at this time when I really feel like life is out of control. And so it, it adds to the burden um, that the patient has to carry when we say things like, everything's going to be fine or um, just, you know, take a deep breath um, and everything uh, will be fine or, you know, don't worry until you have to worry. Um, these uh, lines sort of um, detract from the very real emotion that somebody is feeling at the time of a, uh, of a scary diagnosis or the first inklings of a scary diagnosis. And um, as I said, they, they increase the burden on the, on the patient to then perform in a way that just is not consistent with uh, what we're experiencing. Yeah, I found a definition um, that is kind of a layperson's definition. And sometimes I like to take it down a, a notch or two to, to make it um, seem more relate, relatable, if you will. And I think it's this is perfect. And it, it's exactly what you said in a nutshell. It, it's well-intentioned statements from people who genuinely care. and. You know, I think they're trying to, as Pam, you know, you said in the middle, uh, in the opening of many times I don't know what to say. And so I feel like I have to say something. So I say something that probably doesn't come out quite the way it should have, but it sounded good. And it's keep your head up, you know, this over positive garbage, if you will, <laughs> that, that as you said, now I've got as a cancer survivor going through treatment, it adds to the burden of, well, maybe I should feel that way. And it confuses and it makes it makes their head spin, basically. It does. It does. And of course, um, part of the reason why we all uh, fall back on these platitudes and, and positive statements is because we're really uncomfortable with what what might help? What can we say that uh, that could make a patient um, feel a little bit better? And of course, you know, the first thing that every patient really wants is um, to know that somebody um, hears them and understands them. Um, and so, a statement like um, uh, "I'm so sorry" um, or even "Oh my God, that stinks." Um, I'm here for you. What can I do to help? Um, that acknowledges and validates what the patient is, uh, is feeling as opposed to denying um, the, the very real emotion that, um, that a patient might be experiencing. And of course, everybody is different. I mean, some of us will say right up front, oh my God, I just got a cancer diagnosis and I'm scared to death. I'm convinced I'm gonna die. And I know you're gonna tell me to be positive, but I can't be positive right now. A lot of us will be feeling that, but can't say any of it. And we'll just say, okay, <laughs> I've got cancer. And that's all they want to say. Um, so part of the, the role of being a friend and supporter is, is to listen and to really hear and understand what the patient is really going to want to say and what the patient is going to want to hear. I can remember one time talking to a survivor and they were telling me their story and all I could say was, I can't imagine and she looked at me and she said, well, do you think I can imagine? Yeah. In that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, what should I have said to make her feel better? Yeah. So can you give us some better ways to um, approach some of the toxic positivity statements? Yeah. There's silver linings. It's going to be okay. 
Yeah. So I'm going but, to give more than you would handle. <laughs> yeah, that one's tough. Um, well, I, I think that, you know, even just a, a simple change, like it from I can't imagine to I can only imagine, that says, I understand that you're going through something miserable. I can't, um, I can't sympathize fully because I don't know exactly what you're experiencing, but I can empathize. I can imagine how scary that must be or how complicated and difficult that must be um, and begin to put, um, I mean, you don't want to put words into the patient's mouth, but you want to reflect what the patient is saying to you. And so if the patient is expressing fear and concern, then you want to say, I can only imagine how scared you might be. Um, how, and then instantly follow that with, how can I help? What can I do for you? I'm here for you. And it's, it's the idea of I'm here for you that is um, the most important one to convey. Um, because I think that so often patients feel isolated and alone, um, even if somebody is right beside them, because they don't feel that that person has taken the time to understand them and, um, and to be um, on their side, dealing with their emotions. Um, so, you know, instead of the look for the silver lining, it's, um, uh, oh my goodness, cancer is so scary. Um, I'm here for you. Instead of everything happens for a reason, it's like there's no understanding who gets cancer and why. Um, there's nothing uh, um, definitive about why this happens. Um, you know, how can I help you deal with it? Um, and so that you're constantly going back to what can I do to make it better as opposed to trying to deny that it exists. Yeah, you used two words there in, in, in discussing that of acknowledge and validate. And I think those are really key things, Pam, to, to think about. Um, acknowledge, as you said, what the, what the survivor, what the patient is going through. I understand, you know, I, I, how you could feel that way or, you know, how can I help? What can I do? And then you validate the fact that their feelings are real. It's not, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You know, it's going to be okay. You're acknowledging the state that they're in right there and validating that it's real. And I think um, in my experience, uh, they don't want to be fixed right away. You know, and they're, they're not, right? They're not looking for, I'm not, if I'm the survivor, I'm not looking to you to fix me by me telling you, hey, I was just diagnosed with X. Um, and so hopefully we can come over that hurdle of feeling like, oh, I've got to say something that makes this whole situation better because I don't know that you could. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Ryan. And, and I think that um, part of our discomfort with any type of um, emotional conversation is, um, you know, we don't know what to say. And so therefore, we jump to the, the platitude and the, and the solutions as opposed to, um, you know, one patient that I interviewed for the book, uh, she said, you know, sometimes you just need to hold space, you just need to make the time, make the emotional connection uh, to that patient and let them uh, guide you, let them tell you what they want or need or um, what they need to say. But I also think it's important that whenever you do offer, how can I help you that you are the ones that's following through and not the survivor saying, hey, I need help. You know, it's up to you to continue to check on that survivor. 
That's right. And in fact, so many survivors say that you know, when they're first diagnosed, everybody's there with offers to help. But a cancer doesn't go away you know, in weeks or even months. Um, for many of us, the hardest part is actually after treatment ends and we enter that, um, that survivorship care phase. And uh, a lot of people just sort of fade into the woodwork after the first couple of offers to, um, to help. And, you know, can I take you to chemo? Can I, you know, pick up the kids at school or whatever? And then, you know, six months later, I'm still needy and nobody is around and, and offering help. I know. I've been guilty of that. I know or to say, hey, let me know if you need something. And after the years of being involved more deeply with cancer care and cancer survivorship, I mean, I've really kind of adopted getting away from that and saying, can I bring this tomorrow? Can I come and do today? Yes. You know, and, and, and because the survivor patient who's going through treatment, um, they're not going to probably feel comfortable coming. Hey, remember you said you would do da 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 da. Would you come? Would you come by? So yeah, right. It's it's better to, to kind of for the person wanting to help, let them tell you no, that's not going to work. Could we do it tomorrow? Rather than relying on the survivor to reach back out. That's just that's a that's an easy fix, right? That's a very easy fix. And in fact, it's um it's so important because the cancer patient is so overwhelmed with everything that he or she is dealing with and so focused on let me just get through the treatment that they often forget about all of these other things that need to go on. And of course, you know, as a caregiver, um, you're left holding uh, you know, the strings of, you know, doing everything for the patient, as well as doing everything that the patient used to do to keep the household running. Um, so the caregiver often needs, uh, needs help too. But as a, a friend and loving supporter, um, you can very easily put yourself in the shoes of the cancer patient and recognize that, well, they have kids that need to get picked up at school. They have a dog that needs to get walked. They have a lawn that needs to get mowed. They have groceries that need to be shopped for and offer to do a very specific thing that um, for the most part, the patient will be just delighted to have uh, taken care of and not have to think about. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what is the connection between the cancer diagnosis and the emotional diagnosis? So, you know, this was a, um, a really interesting thing that I uncovered as I was um, going through my research. And, and in writing the book, I, I uh, interviewed um, hundreds of uh, cancer patients, mostly here in the States, but um, a little bit overseas as well, so long as they spoke English. Um, and, and I started to see these patterns in how um, people responded to cancer and when they tended to have those, um, those responses. And that got me then talking to all sorts of experts, um, first uh, oncologists and psychotherapists, but then eventually uh, neuroscientists to try and understand, well, why do we all feel this way? Um, and, you know, the, uh, Ryan, you mentioned we, you know, we all remember where we were at the time of diagnosis. Well, that happens because uh, our brains go into what's commonly referred to as fight or flight syndrome. And we sort of, you know, shut down the prefrontal cortex that makes decisions. But meanwhile, the rest of the brain, the adrenaline flowing through our brains, awakens us to all of the sensations, which is why, you know, I remember it was a beautiful blue sky day. I remember exactly where I was on the street. You know, those things stay, um, stay very pertinent. So that was the first um, emotional uh, connection that I, that I came to understand. Um, I learned an awful lot about um, 
uh, brain chemistry along the way and uh, learned that, that in fact, a lot of our feelings are related to a class of proteins um, uh, that allow our immune system to communicate with itself, um, cytokines. And they've been in the news a little bit lately, cytokine storm uh, as it relates to COVID. But basically there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines. And our body makes both and keeps them in balance most of the time. But if you get a paper cut, pro-inflammatory cytokines go to the site of that paper cut and say, oh, hmm, we've got an open wound. Let's get some platelets over here. And all of a sudden the platelets come and let's get some um, you know, white blood cells here to make sure that there's no infection. And all of a sudden you get a, a little bit of swelling from those extra um, uh, cells and um, the immune system starts doing what it needs to do. Paper cut heals, anti-inflammatory cytokines are released we bring things back into balance, everything is fine. Well, if a paper cut causes pro-inflammatory cytokines, just imagine what massive surgery does. And it turns out the presence of cancer cells elevates um, inflammation, the presence of um, uh, cells dying off, uh, cancer cells in particular dying off, releases pro-inflammatory cytokines. So does chemotherapy, so does radiation therapy, and many immunotherapies are actually cytokine therapies. So our bodies are awash in excess pro-inflammatory cytokines, which the brain then reads as, oh my God, we are overwhelmed, time to climb back into bed, pull the covers over the heads, and we're not getting out of bed for weeks or months. And it's that imbalance of cytokines that leads to um, a lot of the cognitive impairment that sometimes gets called chemo brain. It's what leads to depression. It's uh, a major contributing factor in fatigue. Um, it leads to that sense of, of helplessness um, and a lot of the, the chaos and, and loss of control over life that we all experience. And it turns out that those things are not um, reversed instantly when treatment ends. Um, but in fact, it can take six, 12, even 18 months to return to homeostasis, the balance um, after, uh, after treatment ends. In addition to all of that cytokine activity, we have enormous changes in, um, in hormones as a result of um, surgery or treatment. Um, sometimes um, we get dexamethasone as part of our, um, our uh, chemo infusion. Um, to help uh, uh, mitigate any uh, potential side effects from the chemo uh, and also to increase its effectiveness. Well, that dexamethasone, that's like getting a, a shot of pure adrenaline. So you feel high for a couple of days and you are just you know, bouncing along just fine. Um, but then that those steroids leave your system and you have a, a major crash. And that crash is experienced both physically and emotionally. So a lot of people can be very weepy and, um, you know, and why me um, on the third or fourth day after um, the dexamethasone. Um, some chemos are uh, androgen suppressors, um, some are uh, estrogen suppressors. Um, sometimes we have our hormone producing organs removed as part of our cancer therapy. So all of these changes influence how we experience our emotions, how intense they are um, and what they are. And of course, you know, we're all different. So um, your emotions and my emotions may be felt differently, but we also may express them differently. But there's a good chance that we're all experiencing a great deal of ups and downs in fear, stress, anxiety, and an overwhelming sense of 
hopelessness, helplessness, uh, chaos, um, cognitive impairment, um, and fatigue and depression. Those are all pretty common. Pam, what Cynthia just did for um, probably 99.9% .9 of our listeners was validate all the feelings they had or have currently going through treatment and explained exactly, pretty much exactly why they feel that way. Um, I think that was so powerful because I know, Pam, you have said several times where in your meetings uh, with patients when they're finished with treatment and you're talking about the treatment summary and the care plan and uh, the what's next and the what they've been through. And a lot of what you do is, is you're explaining that it is normal to feel that way. And that's a normal occurrence. And with all the things that are given to cancer survivors while they're going through treatment, my goodness, you're right. You, you, you're talking about this roller coaster, ups and downs and ups and downs. And I know that uh, hopefully that was educational and, and, and making folks feel better about maybe those times that they did feel that way. Yeah. And I think those feelings can lead to isolation. They can, they can, because you think this isn't normal. It's not like the doctor said, you know, and the side effects of this chemo include, you know, peripheral neuropathy and depression. No, they talk about the peripheral neuropathy as a potential side effect, but they don't talk about the fact that there are emotional side effects to the treatment. Um, and so we don't, know to expect them and we think it is our fault when we feel them and and i think that that's um you know the, the fact that as a society we don't talk about um emotional things and we don't talk about mental health um that sort of builds into it um the the sense that we are responsible for our own mental health as opposed to recognizing that it is a chemical imbalance and oh my goodness have you ever screwed up my brain chemistry um because of my cancer so um if in fact we had those conversations um uh as part of the cancer treatment to say you know this treatment is going to cure your cancer or this treatment is going to address your cancer. Um, it's also going to cause some, uh, some changes in your uh, body chemistry and therefore your brain chemistry. You may uh, experience that as uh, depression, as fatigue, as confusion, as et cetera, et cetera. That would, have, that would go a long way oh, yeah. to helping to address the, the, the surprise attack and yeah. therefore the sense of I'm responsible uh, for my emotional weakness. So what if we have a listener out there having these feelings, these emotions, what is your best solution? Uh, well, I think that the most important thing is to allow yourself to feel what you feel um, and to understand that those feelings are valid, um, that they are um, your expression of your cancer diagnosis and that there are in fact these, um, these very real things going on in your body that can be driving those emotions. And then to talk to your doctor about it. You know, if you broke your ankle and you had pain in your leg as a result of the broken ankle, you would say to the doctor, it hurts. Can you give me something for the pain? Can you help me alleviate this feeling? And as a, um, uh, as a, a a cancer patient, we have the expectation that the oncologist is treating the cancer, but we don't think that the oncologist should also be treating the, the, these other symptoms. And often the oncologist doesn't think that he or she should be treating these other symptoms. But we as a patient have a right to be asking for support. And sometimes that support can come 
with the oncologist adjusting the, um, the treatment plan. Sometimes that support can come with a referral to a, um, a, a psychotherapist or a, uh, a pain uh, doctor. Um, you know, uh, supportive care, palliative care, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, it's there as part of most cancer centers and the help is there. Um, but we unfortunately need to be the ones who initiate the conversation. And so when we're feeling that emotional pain, um, it makes sense to acknowledge that we feel it, to recognize that it's okay to feel that way, and then to ask for the supportive care we need to address it. There are lots of things out there, right, Pam, uh, to help patients. I mean, whether it's um, through pharmacy, whether it is through counseling, whether it is through you know, support networks, support groups, mentors. Um, I mean, there's basically something, if not multiple somethings that each person uh, could benefit from. And, and Cynthia, I want to throw something out to you too. You're talking about, um, you know, with our feelings and, and so forth. I am a guy and I am a guy's guy and I got this under control right? And I don't need help. And I don't need, I mean, feelings are for girls or, for, you know, it's, that's, and so what happens, like, if I keep this all bottled up and I keep it all to myself and I'm going to, I don't need help. I'm going to struggle through this by myself and I'm, I'm rough tugging, you know, tough and I don't need to ask for help. Yeah, I think that that's um, a relatively common uh, experience, particularly among men. Uh, lots of women, too, want to either deny or, I like to say, um, even contain uh, some of their emotions by putting a lid on it. Um, eventually, we need to process those emotions. If we don't process those emotions, they come out in um, unexpected ways. Sometimes it comes out as, as anger at those that we love. Sometimes it comes out as, um, uh, as depression much later in life. Uh, one um, uh, patient that I spoke with recently uh, he was diagnosed with sarcoma uh, when he was 17, ended up having his leg amputated. His family was of the, you know, um, suck it up um, uh, mentality. And so that's what he did. He sucked it up and he got on with life. Well, he's now in his 50s and he uh, has attempted suicide three times. Um, and what he finally came to understand was that depression was never having dealt with all that he lost. And it wasn't just a leg, it was a, a lifestyle, a, a vision of his future that all got thrown out the window when that, that, that cancer diagnosis came along. And so whatever your diagnosis, whatever um, you're going through, you are experiencing a tremendous amount of loss and it's loss of, um, of confidence in your body, uh, loss of you know six months, a, a year, three years, whatever it is of, of um, treatment time where your life has gone off the rails, um, loss of um, expectations for your future, um, perhaps loss of friends who fall by the wayside uh, as you're going through treatment, um, loss of self-esteem, loss of, of the image of yourself that you always had. And so you need to grieve that loss. And each of us, as I said, does that in our own ways. Um, and we all have different ways of talking about it, but you need to be true to yourself about what you're feeling and therefore allow yourself to process it. And if your way of processing it is punching a pillow or going out to the quarry and throwing rocks, 
I don't care, so long as you are true to yourself and actually experience and process those emotions. And you know, Ron, um, we have some great outlets here at the Survivorship Center for people to utilize if they don't know how to deal with their feelings. We do. And, uh, you know, maybe we need to bring in a, a heavy punching bag instead of the pillow. We can <laughs> hang, one, hang one up in there in the group room and, you know, uh, let, let someone just kind of have at it as long as they want. But you're right, Pam. Um, you know, we do a lot of things um, at the center that are very, in, well, everything we do is very intentional. But some of the things we do are, you know, obvious what they're for, right? Counseling. Uh, nutrition services, yoga, Tai Chi, those kinds of things. But then we also do some fun things that are great outlets that are chances to kind of process through and work through hikes that we do at, at Paladero Canyon State Park or um, my all-time favorite uh, two things that we've done are uh, our fly fishing activities that we've taken folks to. And then uh, my all-time favorite um, was Guys and Guns. And uh, we partnered with the Amarillo Police Department and some guys that uh, uh, brought out some of their firearms and went through an instruction safety process and then let them shoot some guns. And uh, man, talk about uh, blowing off some steam. It was, it was <laughs> yeah. quite intense and it was a lot of fun. And those guys had a blast, you know. So there's all these things that while we may think, oh, it's just a bunch of people getting together to sing Kumbaya and hold hands and you know, that's not the case at all. Uh, we, we provide all these other activities. Um, th th those are great examples of, of what all we have available, right, Pam? Yes. And then also, you know, sometimes we have well-meaning um, loved ones that want to try to fix it. <laughs> and sometimes, um, you know, take this baking soda once a day or take the vinegar isn't a fix. How, do, how can people um, deal with those well meaning gesture gestures well i you know that's such a great question pam because we all get things thrown at us over the transom that are you know going to solve our cancer or save us from the next cancer or whatever and um you know i think that that the best thing that you can do as a patient is to recognize that it's coming from um, a good place and just say, thank you. I'll discuss that with my doctor when I see him next. Um, and, you know, it's nice that everybody has a cancer cure that they, uh, that they think is going to help. Um, there's, no, um, there's no benefit to me as a patient to get angry at, you know, somebody who suggests something or to, um, to feel, uh, you know, hurt. It's just, it's coming from a, a place of well-meaning and I can just, you know, let it ride over my over my head. Sometimes that's hard, um, particularly when you're feeling as low as one feels uh, during cancer. Um, but to recognize that, um, you know, it's coming from a good place and just say, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll take that under advisement. Yeah. I'm sure they get a lot of those remedies. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you talked about that. It's one thing to get that from a friend or a relative. And hopefully that's who those typically come from. It's not a perfect stranger that sees that, you know, like as you mentioned early on, you know, you, you have a bald head and someone comes sitting down next to you and tells you, hey, maybe have you heard about this? You know, that's totally different. That's when you maybe it's not well intentioned. Maybe they're they're involved in, in, in that process. But, you know, the things to do for cancer survivors to help them. Right. As we've talked about is. Um, acknowledge and validate and then be there for them 
And one thing, Pam, you and I've talked about on numerous occasions is, um, man, I've said this countless times. I, I don't even know what to say, but I can listen, you know, and I, I am here to listen to you at any moment. Yeah. Um, and, and that can be just as powerful as anything else you can say, just to be there and listening. And that's something that you touched on as well, right, Cynthia? Yeah. And the, and the other thing is, is, you know, and, and you can come cry on my shoulder anytime you want. Um, I, you know, I, I've had big men come and cry on my shoulder um, when they've told me their cancer story. And sometimes you just need to know that it's okay to let it out. And, um, and, you know, to be the friend who says, Hey, you can come cry on my shoulder anytime you want. Um, that means a lot to a, a cancer patient uh, because just that simple statement acknowledges that, you just might want to cry sometime. Um, and it, it acknowledges that it's okay um, and that our friendship can sustain you needing to cry on my shoulder. Um, and no judgment for crying. Yeah, no judgment for crying. Right. Um, not at all, even for guys. <laughs> even for guys, even for guys. We can't forget about the caregivers too. Is there anything that we can do um, as a friend or loved one to help with the caregiver? Yeah, I think that the caregiver is often overlooked. And as I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, the caregiver is often holding the pieces together um, while going through many of the same emotions as the cancer patient. So the patient is afraid, um, you know, as the, as the patient, I'm afraid I'm going to die. My husband is afraid that I'm going to die. Um, I'm trying to imagine what he might do to carry on without me He's trying to imagine how in the world can I carry on without her? Um, he's trying to keep the income coming in so that the insurance continues and the medical bills get paid and the household functions. And so the, the loving caregivers are so overwhelmed and so often um, feeling many of the same emotions. Now, they obviously don't have the same brain chemistry changes that, um, that we as cancer patients do. Um, but they have so much going on. And so as friends of the caregiver, um, it makes sense to um, understand that it is a very emotional time for uh, caregivers. Um, and um, to recognize that the caregiver and the patient, while they're going through many of the same things, may not be getting to the same places of understanding at the same time. So for instance, when a, um, uh, a spouse is dying of cancer, um, the caregiving spouse um, may not um, understand as soon as the patient um, that this is a, uh, you know, this is only headed in one direction. They may get there on different times. Um, or, uh, you know, a, a caregiver may assume that the patient is done with treatment and everything is fine now, when in fact the patient is still dealing with that sense of loss and grief and not feeling well yet and confusion about, well, what is my next chapter uh, going to be? So, um, you know, caregivers have a, have a tough um, job uh, taking care of patients um, and need their, uh, their supporters around them as well as the patient does. We can't forget about them. That's yeah. right. Which, which Pam, that's exactly why we say, bring your loved one, bring your caregiver, bring, you know, your spouse um, to, to our activities, whether that is, you know, painting class, whatever activity we have, caregivers and, and spouses, um, loved one, whatever title that is, 
for that person that has walked that journey with you. And it's sometimes is more than one, you know, mm-hmm. bring them, let them be a part of this because, oh my goodness. I mean, the toll that, that they go through is, is mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, everything draining. And so um, they need to be built back up as well. And that's, they, they need an outlet. Yeah. And that's a big thing for us. We, we, we care about caregivers. And so if you're listening, please know, yes, it's about you as a survivor, but it's also about your loved one, your spouse, your caregiver. That's, that's huge. Yes. I always like to say, you know, people don't get cancer, families do. It, it really does affect the entire household and caregivers need support too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Cynthia, before we get into our last segment, talk to our listeners about uh, where they can get your book um, and, and other endeavors that you've got going on and how they can follow along with you. Sure. You know, the, the, um, the easiest answer is to go to my website. Um, it's thebigordeal.com. And from there, um, you'll find a tremendous amount of information. There are a lot of patient stories, um, a lot of uh, insights from the research that I've done. It's all available for free. Um, If you decide you want to buy the book, there's a link um, uh, from the website. You can uh, purchase it there. Um, It's also available in bookstores everywhere. Um, So The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing uh, the Emotional Turmoil of Cancer. Um, And, you know, I, uh, I like to... Uh, update the website on a regular basis with more stories and, and blog posts. Um, and you can also find me on, um, uh, on Twitter um, uh, at, uh, at The Big Ordeal um, and on Facebook, uh, Cancer Got The Big Ordeal. Um, and I'm always happy to hear from uh, patients. Always love to uh, hear other patient stories. Um, if you want to share your patient story, I'd be delighted to put it, add it uh, to the website. Um, so uh, please um, awesome. do be in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. If there's one thing I've learned over the years, and I know Pam, you, you, you get this too. Cancer survivors have amazing stories and uh, everyone's story is different. Everyone's story is their own. There's might be a common theme, but it's totally two separate stories and man, they can be powerful just, and that's why we encourage all of our listeners, all of our survivors to share your story, tell your story. It's yours. You, I mean, you wrote it. it. I mean, it's it's your journey, and uh, it's unfortunate that you've had to go through that. But share your story because I think it's it brings so much power and so much, um, you know, uh, validation and can help someone else along the way. Yeah, I think it's also a really important part of the recovery process um, to talk about it and to realize all that you have been through um, in the process of um, getting to where you are. Um, so many patients uh, after uh, sharing their story with me for, uh, for the book and the website um, have said, wow, thank you. Uh, I didn't remember all that I had been through and this really helped me um, sort of put a bow on the experience. Um, even if they're still you know, going through it, if they're not, you know, not looking in the rear view mirror yet. Um, it's just, it's a very powerful process to, to tell your story. And as a nurse, um, I love hearing those stories. It lets them open up, but it also impacts the way that maybe your caregiver or loved ones can help other ones in the future. So we like to leave our listeners on a positive note. We are sponsored by Pete's Car Smart Kia. We would like to hear your Pete's powerful moment. So I think that the, the most powerful thing um, that I can say is to remind um, 
patients that even though the doctor uh, may be the expert in cancer, that you are the only expert in you. You are the only one who knows what it's like to be inside your body, inside your mind. Um, the only one who knows um, how you really feel on you know, dealing with this particular cancer, dealing with this particular uh, treatment plan. Um, and so the idea of partnering with your care team um, and uh, communicating in a way that uh, allows your doctor to respect you as the expert as much as you respect uh, him or her as the expert in your cancer. Um, so you're the only one who knows what it's like to be you. That's a powerful moment. It is. It is. And Pam, it seems like um, that thread has been woven into, I think, countless episodes of Beyond the Ribbon that we've done. Um, you know, advocating for yourself and speaking up for yourself and you know what you are going through. And uh, wow, it's, it's, it's fun to see those commonalities coming out in totally different topics, but yet there is still that common theme of you are in charge and you are the one calling the shots. That's right. Wow. Well, and I think that it's, um, it's so important because we so often feel helpless and as if we've turned over control of our lives uh, to cancer. And by taking back some of that control again, uh, by being in the conversation, um, we not only help ourselves in terms of um, making sure that the doctor understands what we're feeling, uh, but we help ourselves because we do take back a little bit of power and that makes us feel a little bit less out of control um, at a time when life is out of control. Completely out of control sometimes, right? Wow. Oh, Cynthia, thank you for today. I tell you, um, I, if, if, if there's anything that someone gets from this, uh, it's that theme of it's okay to feel that way and, and to not be okay in the moment. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's validation, you know, acknowledging and validating those, those feelings of cancer survivors. And Pam, I think that um, this one's probably going to be way up on the top of the list of, of the ones that people are going to go back and listen to several times and maybe even recommend it, right? So we want people to share this. We want you to subscribe to our podcast. If you're listening to our podcast, leave us a review. Let us know, you know, let us know how we're doing, uh, good or bad. We know it's only good, so we don't have to worry about that. But leave us a review, like our podcast, share our podcast, hit all the buttons as we say, and I tell you, Pam, uh, these episodes never cease to really just hit home, right? Yes, every single one of them. They do, they do. So I tell you, if you're listening along, pass this along and join us next week for another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.